and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode, we chat with Linda Badcock. Linda is now retired, but spent 18 years as a historic sites officer with Provincial Historic Sites. One of her passions during this time was creating realistic period costumes. In this episode of the Living Heritage podcast, we chat about making period costumes, sourcing materials and patterns, and where she learned these skills. We also touch briefly on millinery, or hat making, which is listed on Heritage NL's Craft at Risk list. Good morning, Linda, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Tara. So just to start off, can you give me a little bit of your background and how you became interested or ended up kind of doing some historical costume work and, and dressmaking and things like that? Certainly. Uh, I worked for uh, 18 years, I think, as a historic sites officer with the Provincial Historic Sites. And at that time, uh, most of the interpreters in, in most of the sites were dressed in period clothing appropriate to the period of restoration that their buildings were in. I found when I started working, there, w- there was a supply of period clothing, but a lot of it was kind of cookie cutter. And uh, I think there was some that wasn't awfully accurate. And I, it was something I was very interested in. So I just uh, started acquiring books and patterns and studying and doing uh, some site visits to other places to see how it was done there. Uh, I visited, uh, well, a number of places. Uh, I, I went to a few LFAM conferences, which exposed me to a lot of different te- techniques and different periods of costume and styles of costume. And I couldn't resist making some things myself. So I, uh, I did buy patterns, which were really sort of adaptations, I suppose, to the modern figure, because we were not the same shape as we were 100 years ago. And people would wear them that <laughs> they were willing. And we, I tried to get into as much as possible the underpinnings as well, but that was a, an uphill struggle. And, it, you know, it was costly and also uh, not always easy to find the, the, right, the right seamstresses to do the work. And so what are some of the sites and I guess some of the period costumes that mm-hmm. some you were working on at the time? Okay. Well, the commissariat house was restored to the 1830 period, so uh, late Georgian, and it was a male household. So, but yet most a lot of the interpreters tended to be female. So it was a little, you know, I couldn't dress them as the person who actually lived there necessarily. But I I tried to have them dressed appropriate to the period and kind of what we would say would be everyday clothes. I tried to be accurate to the fiber. That meant cotton and linen and wool, natural fibers. And uh, for men, again, the same sort of thing, cotton, linen, and wool. Then we also had a couple of early 20th century locations in Trinity. The Hiscock House was restored to 1910. And uh Again, it's still natural fibers because, you know, it was the mid 20th century before the polyester and nylon and so on came into common use. So in Trinity, it was a lot of skirts and shirtwaists were very popular for women then. 
And uh, in that case, it was a household of women. The, the Hiscock house was a widow and her, her two daughters who were living in the house at in 1910. So we did try to replicate the kind of things that women of that class would have worn. Uh, we had the Cape Bonavista Lighthouse, which was restored to 1870. And so you get into uh, hoops and so on. But, you know, it, it, in the cons constrained spaces at the lighthouse, hoops would not have been practical. So they didn't usually wear them. Uh, the, the, the interpreters didn't anyway. I don't know about the women. They possibly went with a lot of petticoats or corded petticoats or something like that. Where else will the... Uh, the Mockbigger plantation was kind of interesting. The Bradley House was the the only building that was actually being interpreted when I was working, and that was restored to 1939. So uh, you could actually have zippers and machine sewing and that kind of thing. There was also the uh, Point of Moore Lighthouse, which was 1850s, so again mid 19th century, and there were a few costumed interpreters or sometimes costumed at the Hearts Content cable station. And that is was interesting because actually a lot of women were working at the cable station in the 1918 period of restoration. So it, it was kind of interesting to see how they how they might have dressed. They needed practical clothing, but modest and so on. And you mentioned hand sewing. So for any of the period clothing that you worked on, did you work on that by hand or did you use sewing machine or uh, did it? Generally, anything that showed, I wanted to do by hand. So I, I did the seams by machine, but the hems were done by hand and any kind of finishing. Buttonholes were hand done. I did them when I made them, at least. And that, that's, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of what other kind of stitching might have been showing, but at least those parts of it were. What were some of the skills that you found were needed to be able to make and alter period clothing? Oh, well, hand stitching, of course, and handmade buttonholes. That was a learning curve. And I finally realized that uh, I really needed the proper thread to do the buttonholes that ordinary sewing thread wasn't at least for me did not work cartridge pleats that was a new technique for me what else would there have been piping there were a lot of seams were piped in uh, at least in the 1830 period and I think in the 18 the later 19th century as well so piping is a, where you have a cord covered with the fabric and it was sewn into a lot of the seams. It's a nice finishing touch. What is a cartridge pleat? You mentioned that as well. Cartridge pleats, uh, let me think. Cartridge pleats are very fine pleats. You turn over an edge, uh, say you're uh, attaching the, uh, or you're making the skirt of a dress. The top edge you would turn over and you use, as I recall, you would do this. I haven't made it, done a cartridge pleat for a number of years. You use a, hand, a needle and thread, heavy thread, and you fold little tiny pleats in the, in the skirt and you, you bring your, your needle and thread through them, keeping it quite even. 
so that they're actually suspended on a thread, a long string, you might say. And it can be adjusted then so that uh, to fit the bodice of the of the skirt. Generally, there would have been two. I, I, I think I think there were two uh, of the strings that it was hung on. And you mentioned when you were making uh, buttonholes how you would need the proper thread. So what yeah. what was the difference between kind of the thread that you use for those versus you said kind of regular sewing uh, yeah. thread? Uh, well, it's heavier. Uh, and in fact, it's called buttonhole twist. So, you know, <laughs> it's all really when you think of it. I found there was a, a company in the States which produced a lot of, I think they're still going, a lot of patterns called sensibility patterns. And uh, I, I was in conversation with the owner of that company by email and uh just talking about buttonholes with her and uh, she was very helpful. She suggested either embroidery floss or the buttonhole twist. Either one would work. And she was right. And how did you find, I know you mentioned there was a few kind of companies that you could purchase period clothing from, but how did you find sourcing materials if you had to make something yourself or you had to alter something? Was it? Oh, yeah. I did use modern thread. I did not go for the all cotton. I used uh, Guterman's or, you know, one of the ones that's commercially available. And for fabric, I just, I just looked for something that looked, for example, I remember one time, one of the first dresses I made had uh, strawberries printed on it. And I knew, I knew from reading the little house books that strawberries were a fashionable motif in the 19 or the 18. 60s so and it was the, around that period so I, I just bought 100% cotton with the strawberry print on it and uh, made a dress out of that and so I had well uh, eventually the internet was a useful tool of course but when I started work at that job in 1992 the internet wasn't really all that common you know we, we weren't using it so catalogs and you know printed material that uh, that I had, I acquired quite a quite a library of uh, books on period clothing and sample not samples but repre representations of the types of uh, materials that were used at different times. Did you ever happen to wear any of the period costumes yourself, or did you yes. hear from? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, I made a couple to fit me. I would use I would use them if I happened to be in the site at some appropriate time. Yeah. And what was it like wearing the period costume, either yourself or I guess other interpreters? What was what did you hear any feedback about what it was like wearing the? Well, uh, uh, I know a lot of them complained that it was hot because these were long dresses, long sleeves, and everything, and the season is in the summer. Certainly anyone who wore a corset would notice the difference because you, you really have to sit upright. It's very, uh, I never lost any inches around my waist from it or anything, but it was, you know, the whole upper body was, was uh, supported and stiffened and you know, you didn't, you didn't slouch for sure. So uh, there was that. We, we'd usually wear a petticoat and, uh, some of them, some of the women would wear drawers, but we didn't necessarily have enough drawers and they didn't show anyway, <laughs> or they shouldn't. Did you have a particular favorite or a costume that you worked on 
or kind of uh, era that you worked on? I, I like the 1830 period. Uh, it had big sleeves and a fitted bodice and then a, quite a full skirt. Yeah, that was attractive. The gigot sleeve, it was called. Were there other kind of people in historic sites or in, um, I guess, the heritage industry who were also doing this sort of work? Or, or did you kind of learn on your own? And I know you mentioned uh, you purchased a lot of books and patterns, but. Yes, I, I talked a lot to uh, Marie Sharp, who was the wardrobe mistress at the Arts and Culture Center, and she had a good knowledge of historic styles and shapes and so on through dressing many, many musicals and uh, plays and that sort of thing. And I did mention ALFAM, which is the Association for Living, let me think, Living History Farm and Agricultural Museums. I went to Waterloo for, for uh, that was the first conference I, had, uh, ALFAM conference I attended was in Waterloo, where there are, an, uh, there's a cluster of historic houses and sites of different types there. And I went, and also, of course, people who came in from other locations and gave presentations. And I tended to attend the sessions on period clothing because that was my interest. Um, then I went to one at Old Sturbridge Village, which was fantastic, down in uh, Massachusetts. And again, uh, Old Sturbridge Village is an 1830s uh, village which was great. And the whole place is dressed in period clothing. And I went to a local one in uh, Sherbrooke Village in Nova Scotia, where again, I'm, and I met the costumer there. And uh, I went to another conference in Ottawa, which again, uh, I, one of the site visits was uh, to Upper Canada Village, which is 1867, I guess, I think was the, the period there. And that was interesting as well. To, and we, every time I could, I would visit the, the uh, costume headquarters to see what they were doing. And I guess before we kind of started the recording, I had mentioned that I'm hoping to do an interview uh, with Mrs. Reed's granddaughter. So yeah, yeah. You, you said you happened to, to uh, know her through, I think you lived on the same, That's the same right. area? Yeah. 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 Seeking. So you... Yeah. Um, well, uh, Mrs. Reed and her daughter lived a few doors down from us. Um, and Mrs. Reed, I, I knew had gone to, she told me, she said she had gone to work at when she was 15, I think. And I don't know what she, all the jobs she had, but she was a milliner and she had a hat block and she was a, a dressmaker as well and did lovely work. Uh, she was quite elderly by the time I met her, I think. It was her daughter that I knew better. It was, it was always interesting to go to their house because both of them were very interested in not just sewing, but all kinds of needlework. And there was always some interesting project being needle pointed or knitted or something like that. And I guess one of the reasons that we're doing um, these interviews and uh, these kind of podcast episodes is uh, we've just released a craft at risk document and um, ranked a number of uh, heritage kind of crafts and skills 
And one of the ones that is on there is millinery. Uh, certainly there's other skills. You mentioned embroidery and uh, kind of other textile skills on there. But it's something that we have an interest in. And we're just looking to speak with people who, who might have had some of those skills. So it's really, it's really interesting to chat with you about some of those. Yeah. I did a millinery. I did a millinery. Uh, I don't know. You can't call it a course. A, a millinery few days one time. I went to uh, Nova Scotia to Sherbrooke Village and with the, the wardrobe mistress, Meg Wilcox. And in, it was during the winter and she had three of us, three of us came and we went to her home and uh, she taught us how to make hats, which, well, I mean, obviously you can't learn everything in a few days, but we learned the basics and how to do different, uh, different styles. I know I was doing a poke bonnet and uh, one of the other ladies was doing a fashion, uh, mid 19th century type of hat. And there was the other one, I can't remember what she was doing. We have, we used buckram and we used wire and various uh, silk. A lot of silk, I think, was used in hats. And uh, then different decorative things, like feathers and flowers and so on. And did you make any hats when you uh, returned from that immersion? Uh, I didn't actually make any more hats. It, it's quite labor intensive. And I tended to, uh, I, I kind of adorned, a few, if I could find a hat that was the right shape, I would decorate it a bit, that sort of thing. Yeah. And for a lot of the clothing, the different time periods that you're talking about, for people in, in Newfoundland and Labrador at that time, would they have been making their own clothing or would they have been purchasing it? And It's hard to say. I mean, I'm sure... There are people who know this kind of thing. I have looked at early newspaper ads and I saw there were ads for tailors and dressmakers and ads for, you know, for uh, merchants offering velvet and different sorts of fabrics. Presumably, if you had the money, you could get a lot of things in Newfoundland because, after all, access to the sea, which was the main source of transportation. I know that there was a diary, which may be in the provincial archives by now, but I am not sure. But it was a man who had worked at the Hearts Content Cable Station, and his in, he had letters. It wasn't a diary, it was letters. And he mentioned that he'd bought a dress for his mother, but that would have been you know, late 19th century, I think. So I'm sure there must have been some ready-made clothing available. And it, I guess it would depend on your social status and income and that kind of thing. And, and certainly, well, I grew up in the 1950s and a lot of people made clothes in those days. It's just not as common now to, to make your own clothes. But I think it was more of a common thing to make your own clothes or to have them made for special occasions and so on. Uh, so I would imagine, you know, I'm just relating what it was like 50, 60, 70 years ago to what it might have been like that much earlier. But I, I can't quote any uh, actual source to you for that. Is there anything else from your time at historic sites and doing this kind of work that you think we should know? Is there anything else that stands out from that time? Well, it's more uh, to 
to use period clothing as an interpretive device is more than just dressing up. The person wearing the clothing really needs to become part of the exhibit and to, well, ideally uh, use the mannerisms and form and the, the sort of way people moved and that kind of thing in the period that's being portrayed. There's value too, I think, to saying, well, this is what people dressed like in the olden days or something. Or I've seen programs where someone is getting dressed and they start in a shift and then they put on the corset and then they put on, you know, all the layers just to just to describe it. And I think there's value to that. But if ideally, when I visit a site, I like to see people really becoming the people they're portraying. And not everybody does that, but it would be nice. So for you, for living heritage interpretation and sites, for the people who are in costume, would you, I guess, would you also kind of prefer that they not break that, you know, when interacting with? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, that's a hard question because sometimes people want to, uh, you know, people have, the visitors have genuine questions that they want to know about. I guess it depends on whether you know, are they doing, is this, are the interpreters doing a little vignette? Are they portraying somebody or are they demonstrating the house that they're in? Or, you know, I think there's room for both. I know you work with historic sites. Was this kind of your main part of your job or was this just one small part of your job? It was like what? just one part of my job. I was responsible for uh, kind of for the operation of the sites. So that involved hiring and training and developing programs and, you know, buying the paper for the copier and and all all sorts of that kind of administrative things as well. But the the period clothing was my kind of my baby. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, developing programs for um, historic sites and for um, living heritage sites? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, When I started in the job, uh, there was no, I was the one who had to do that, along with the staff at the sites. And in fact, the staff at the sites at that time were mainly students. So they were there for a summer and really, unless you had someone who was really, really into it, you could not expect them to be developing new programs and that kind of thing. They, they would do the guided tour and, and uh, so, you know, if they had particular interests, they would probably go into depth about the furniture or the, the china or, or the, <laughs> the light in the lighthouse or something like that. Um, but then we did get more seasonally recurring staff who were not, not students. And the, uh, they were given the responsibility to develop new programs. So they would organize things, uh, events. Uh, sometimes it was a one-time thing, or it could be something that occurred on a, on a regular basis. Uh, the guided tour was always, always the main the main thing that happened when anybody went to visit the site. Uh, But there could be 
oh, a demonstration of uh, cooking in the kitchen or uh, gardening or sewing or something like that. And is there any events, uh, I guess, that were either reoccurring or one-offs that kind of stand out as particularly good or particularly memorable? Well, uh, as time went on, there, were, there was more involvement with either outside companies to develop programs. Uh, for example, uh, the... Uh, I'm trying to think if she had, if the company had a name or not. It was Mary Walsh, anyhow. Mary Walsh and Rick Boland developed some plays, sort of <laughs> interactive plays for the commissariat house and for the Kitty Bitty Battery. And tea was served, and there would be things happening in the various rooms of the of the commissariat house, for example, and. Uh, Kitty Vitty Battery had a great one where there was an uprising and they were, you know, soldiers came in or non-soldiers came in and tried to uh, get the the crowd, the visitors to take the pledge or to uh, overthrow the king or and that kind of thing. So it got everybody involved and that was a lot of fun. Um, anywhere else? We've had, they had... Uh, people who formerly worked at the Hearts Content Cable Station come and talk about their time there. But it's been closed now for quite a long while. So, you know, the, that time is limited. That opportunity is limited now. There were often uh, Canada Day events at the Bradley House because Senator Bradley was so involved in uh, bringing Newfoundland into Confederation. So the Canada Day connection was there. There, you know, that kind of thing. They, these were done by outside agencies. And uh, also there were, uh, then towards the end of my time in, in the position, other uh, companies were brought in to sort of re have another look at the way the houses, the buildings were being developed and interpreted. And so a lot of changes have been made since that time. I'm not sure. I think they maybe only use period clothing for for period related events now. I think per, I'm not 100% sure of that. I think that's about it for my question. So that was that was great. Thank you so much. Nice chatting. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And keep your eye out for upcoming episodes on our Mentor Apprentice program. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.